What do wine, diamonds, olive oil, plants, and gold have in common? Wine, diamonds, olive oil, plants, and gold. To make certain types of wine, grapes are put through a crusher and then poured into, uh, into open fermentation tanks. Once fermentation begins, the grape skins are pushed to the surface by carbon dioxide uh, released in the fermentation process. The conditions surrounding how diamonds are formed are precise and intense. A diamond needs both very high temperature and very strong pressure in order to metamorphose from its basic carbon form into the gem that you see in the jewelry stores all over the world. Olive oil is produced by grinding olives and extracting the oil by mechanical or chemical means. Seeds become plants through a progression known as germination. And gold is refined as a craftsman. And, and this was how they did it back in the days of the Bible. Uh, and in many cases, it's still how gold is refined today. A craftsman sits next to a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities or dross that rise to the top of the molten metal. And if you know your Bible, you know that God uses that refining process many times to illustrate the refining process of trials and tribulation in our own lives as His children. But here's the one thing that all of these have in common. It's that they are the result of a process. They don't come about overnight. And the same is true for what the Bible calls sanctification. Pastor Tyler is the one who actually got me thinking in this direction and on this topic uh, last Wednesday night when he used the word sanctification in his message as he was preaching about Peter and God's work in his life. And then Friday night and even into Saturday, um, simply because I preached on Friday night at the Amen Conference, uh, a number of men came to me and asked me to sign their Bibles. And that's not uncommon. They asked Brother Polly. They, uh, they asked Brother Skelly. And the only problem was those two guys, they had, they had beautiful cursive writing. And I drew these little stick figures. It was bad. Huck writes better than Pawpaw. So he had these beautiful signatures, so I, especially in Bibles that had a lot of signatures in it already, I tried to kind of sneak in by one and just hide it there. But as I would, would write my name, I would also add my life verse. Brother Paulie talked about his life verse and how it's changed for him to, uh, I believe it's in Acts 20 now. Uh, my life verse is uh, actually our text, 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 5 and, and verse 24, which is written in the context of sanctification. So with all of that, I, I felt led of the Lord to address the topic tonight under the title, as you can see, Trust the Process. Those who want gold have to trust the process. Those who plant wheat and, and expect to harvest it, they have to trust the process. Uh, anything that is worthwhile goes through a process, and we have to trust the process. And we're going to talk about this, the topic of sanctification. That sanctification is a big deal to God is revealed in Paul's words found actually in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So let's go there and then we'll jump over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes and he says this, Furthermore then... We beseech you, the word literally means beg or plead with you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and please God, so ye would, underline these next four words, abound more and more. Now, this is not the message, but there is a principle being taught here. Because if you look back to chapter 3 and, and verse 12, it says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound. And then if you look in chapter, in, in, uh, chapter 4 and verse 10, But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase, what? More and more. The principle that, that Paul is teaching here tonight, church, is this. The Christian life is not a static life. The Christian life is not a, a, a sit still and do nothing life. The Christian life is to be a life of progress. It's to be a life of gaining and growing and doing it more and more and abounding. Are you with me? abounding as Paul talks about here, not being lethargic. That's, that's, why, that's why we need revival from time to time because we do get lethargic and we do get sedentary and we, we do get uh, uh, complacent. And every now and then we just need God and His Word and the Holy Spirit working through His man to come and preach to us and encourage us and challenge us and exhort us to abound, to increase, and to do it more and more. And then look at verse 2. Or, yeah, verse 2. For ye know what commandments we gave you. Those next four words are very important as well. By... The Lord Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. Thessalonians, listen, this is, this is not, these are not my words. This is not my desire. This is what, not what I would like 
to see. This is not necessarily what I'm choosing to say. He makes it very clear here to them and to us when they heard the reading of the letter the first time. And now thousands of years later, when you and I hear the preaching of the word of God from this first letter to the Thessalonians, we need to understand tonight that these are the inspired words of God. These were words given to Paul by the Lord Jesus. That, or excuse me, um, verse 3. For this is the will of God. How many of you know that when you read that, what Paul is about to say is very important? Right? He says, this is the will of God. People say, well, what's God's will for my life? Well, I'm about to tell you what part of it is because Paul tells us what part of it is. And here's what he says in verse, in verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And then he goes on to say this, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess or, or, or to control or to keep under his vessel, his body in, what's that next word? Sanctification, Sanctification and honor. Sanctification is a large part of God's will for your life. And it will ultimately be accomplished as is revealed in our text here in just a moment. But before we get there, and this is something that, that has, has been, um, and it's just been on my heart for a while now. And God just happened to direct me to this text but is it, is it just me? Or does it seem that fornication is being celebrated and congratulated more and more these days? Am I right or wrong? I may be, I may be totally wrong. But to me, it seems like that we are applauding and congratulating and celebrating fornication. And my question tonight is this, how can a believer rightly rejoice in and celebrate and applaud something that God clearly states we are to steer clear from? Is that a fair question, Brother Mike? God says abstain from it. And yet it happens and we're like, yeah, that's awesome. Woohoo! How can we rightfully be proud of something that does not please God? Are you with me? It does not please God in any way, shape, or form. If sanctification is God's will, then fornication is not. 
more and more people seem to be celebrating and thinking it's acceptable to be out of God's will. Hey, look at me. <laughs> I'm out of God's will. It's where I am. And I'm happy about it. People around me are happy about it. And we're celebrating and we're applauding it. And it's, it's awesome. Say, preacher, are you going to be this much of a jerk all night? No. I'm just telling you what's on my heart. And listen, I'm getting old. Okay, I get that. You don't have to tell me that. My back has told me that all week. Preacher, you're getting old. And times are changing. But church, listen to me tonight. Even our young pastor would stand here tonight and tell you this book is not changing. And what God said to abstain from and is outside of his will for your life and mine 2,000 years ago is still out of God's will for our life in 2021. And it is not to be celebrated. It is not to be congratulated. It is not to be uh, uh, applauded. I'm not saying you got to be mean and angry and cantankerous. But for crying out loud, we, we don't do anybody any good when we celebrate their sin. We just don't. And we ought not do that under any, under any circumstances. Throughout the letter to the believers in, in Thessalonica, Paul addresses concerns having to do with both doctrine and life. Or we might say it like this, he addresses what we believe and how we live. And the truth is, as I, I, just, uh, I just said a moment ago, just now in my little diatribe, what we believe ought to determine how we live. It just should. To close his letter... Paul presents a, a list of directives to the Thessalonians and obviously to us as well as 21st century believers that at first glance makes us feel a bit overwhelmed. I mean, look at it beginning in uh, verse 14. If you're there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 now, beginning in verse 14, look at this list. Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. Be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil. Ever follow that which is good. Rejoice evermore. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, and everything give thanks. Verse 19, quench not the spirit. Verse 21, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. And it's like Paul <laughs> leaves zero room here for mistake. I mean, he, he covers it all. It's like if, if, if we can pull this off, we're going to be perfect. But alas, our sinful selves cannot pull this off. So we won't be perfect. At least not in this life. And Paul knows that. And that's why... He tacks on this prayer at the end 
of his letter. Here it is, verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you. What's that next word, church? Holy. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then here, here, here's my life verse. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. This is a prayer for something that hasn't happened yet. We know it hasn't happened yet because we looked in the mirror this morning. <laughs> and it was obvious. We aren't holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, H-O-L-Y. Can I get an amen right there? We are not holy, holy, nor totally pure. And honestly, most of us probably don't even feel close to that. How many, how many of you would agree with me tonight? Honestly, Brother Prater, I feel like I've got a long way to go. Raise your hand. That, that you, got, you feel like you've got a long way to go. Absolutely. So do I. But here's the good news. You listening? We will get there. It's guaranteed. And more on that in a moment. When you read the words of, of Paul's prayer for his Thessalonians friends, it's as if he's saying this, Lord, I've done all I can do. I've taught these people all that I know. Now, you're going to have to take it from here. And unless you help them, they won't turn out right. And that leads me to offer a layman's definition of sanctification, which is this. Sanctification is everything God does in your life and mine to make sure we turn out right. God intends to make sure that His children turn out right. Now, this is a good time to call a timeout and insert something here that I've, I've taught here a number of times before. When we, when we talk about sanctification, there are actually three different, I don't know what the word to use here, three different parts of sanctification or three different kinds, if you will, of sanctification. First of all, there is, and let me back up a little, to be sanctified means to be set apart. Um, in the Old Testament temple, there were many vessels that were said to be sanctified. That meant that they were set apart as holy by God and for God. They had a special purpose. You weren't supposed to use those. Like, guys, we're not supposed to use our wife's best cutting scissors to cut plastic. Hello? Those are sanctified. Those are set apart. And there were times when people messed with sanctified things in the Bible that God killed them. And I'm just telling you, you mess with mama's cutting scissors. Am I right? Look, she's going, she got her knife out right there. Watch out, Gary. Watch out, buddy. Romani, help your brother there. <laughs> you mess with mama's cutting scissors, and it's going to be a bad day. Yeah. 
It's going to be just a bad day. So there are some things that are in the Old Testament. There was a mountain. Mount Sinai was said to be sanctified. Um, uh, the priests were sanctified. Uh, there were just a number of, of things that were set aside by God for God. When you and I got saved, we were set apart by God for God positionally. The verse I like to use to describe that is the verse where Paul talks about you and I being translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. On September 8th, 1976, when I called on the name of the Lord and asked Him to save me, and He saved me, that moment, positionally, I am, I am no longer in the kingdom of darkness. I am now living in the kingdom of light. Are you with me? I have been set apart. I have been sanctified positionally. That's where I am. And praise God, listen, that's where I'll always be positionally. Now, if you have a Bible that uses the phrase being saved, you might want to rethink that. Because there's only one, there's only one degree of salvation, and that is eternal forever. We are not being saved. Listen to me. On September 8th, 1976, I was saved. Forever saved. I'm not being saved. You know what I'm being? Somebody tell me. Sanctified. In other words, there is what we might call practical or progressive sanctification. It's not that I'm getting more saved every day. No, that's not, that's not doctrinally correct. What is true, though, is that I ought to become more sanctified every day. That I ought, to be, I ought to be more and more set apart from sin and the world and the flesh and the devil every day. There ought to be this ongoing process of sanctification in my life and in your life. Amen. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that more in just a moment, not much, because the focus, listen, the focus of Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 was perfect sanctification. That day, as Brother Mike led us to sing about today, when we see Jesus face to face and we will be perfect, we will be holy, holy. We will be perfectly sanctified. And that's the sanctification that Paul is talking about in this, in this verse. There's a, a verse scripture, I'll, I'll read you real quick, Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What God started in me... Uh, um, on September 8th, 1976, is what he's going to complete in me one day when I see him face to face. Sanctification then is God's commitment to us. We're going to make it. He will personally see to it. Five things real quick I want to give you, and I, I got to hustle. Um, number one, the person. Note the beginning of verse 23 again. And the very God. How awesome is that? How awesome is it when 
uh, when you, maybe you have a problem with uh, um, uh, a service guy or, or, or you have a problem with car dealership and the service department and, and you go and, and you lodge your complaint and, and the owner of the business says to you, Bill, I will oversee it personally. I personally will make sure it gets done. Doesn't that make you feel good? Hey, this guy, this guy's going to make sure it gets done. And, and that's what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. The very God. He's talking the very God of heaven. He's going to make it happen. And by the way, he has to make it happen because we cannot make ourselves better. We just can't. And then there's the purpose. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. The word holy translates a two-part Greek word that combines holos, which means whole, and telos, which means in the end. So what Paul is saying here is that God has ordained that his children... And he's talking about all of them without exception will in the end be made complete. And granted, we're not that way now. Right now, right now if you're like me, there are times that you feel so fragmented and, and, and torn. And we just are not where we, we want to be spiritually and, and, and we struggle to get to where we need to be spiritually. And we wrestle with sin and we wrestle with temptation and we wrestle with the world and the flesh and the devil. But listen, church, there's coming a day when that wrestling match will be over. We won't fight it anymore. So we're not finished yet, but we will be. We're not completely clean today, but we will be. We're not altogether wise today, but we will be. In his comments on, on this text, John Calvin said that God intends, quote, the entire renovation of man. The entire renovation of man. I, long illustration there. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna skip that. God has been working on some of us for 25, 30, 40, even 50 years and more. There's some people sitting among us tonight who've been saved for 50, more than 50 years. And God is still working on us. God eventually comes to the place for the money when he says, I've done all I can do down there. So you're going to have to come up here where, where the conditions are more conducive to me finishing my job. And I will finish the job. There will be a perfect money Elmore. As even right now, there is a perfect Joy Elmore and Marla Elmore and T.J. Prater. They have been perfected just as God promised. The very God has done that. Today, you and I are holy in spots. Oh, but listen, 
Listen, when God finishes us, we will be holy, holy. And I pray God, Paul said, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved. God's intention is to renovate all of us. Every part of us, not just some parts. Nothing will be left out. Nothing will be overlooked. Every aspect of our lives will be made perfect in the end. Suppose tonight you could change anything about yourself that you wanted to. Where would you start? Most of us, I'm guessing, would start with something on the outside. Well, I'd be skinnier. Can I get a witness right there? I'd be taller. I'd be shorter. I'd be better looking. And if our pastor was here, he'd say, not hard there. He's my son. I know him. Some perhaps would change their eyes or their hair or their teeth. Hallelujah. Or their legs or their bulges or their balding. I mean, if, if you could change anything about you, most of us would start on the outside. We just wave a magic wand and change our outward appearance. Man, we'd do it. But we, it's hard to change ourselves on the outside. And if it's hard on the outside, how much harder must it be on the inside? Think about that for a minute. If you could change anything about you tonight on the inside, what would it be? Can I just give you some things to think about? Would it be an impatient spirit? Would it be a critical tongue? Would it be envy of those around you? Would it be a spirit of discontentment? Would it be lingering resentment? Would it be lust you can't conquer? Would it be financial mismanagement? A guilty conscience? Overbearing stubbornness? A judgmental spirit? A quick temper? Mm-hmm. Profound discouragement, an ungrateful spirit, a disorganized life. Now be honest, if you could change one thing about you on the inside tonight, what would it be? What needs God's touch the most? Now, here's the good news of the gospel. We are going to be changed. We've been changed positionally. We're in the kingdom of God now. Somebody say amen. We're in the kingdom of God. 
And hopefully, hopefully you and I are being changed more and more into the image of Christ every day. But again, one of these days, we're going to be holy, holy, completely changed. That will be our position. Paul used the word blameless. It means faultless. It's a legal term that means to be acquitted in a court of law. You are blameless. If no one can bring a charge against you. It's not true of any of us now. Those who know us best. Know our weaknesses. And could very easily testify against us. If it were not for their kindness toward us. Granted, we are far from blameless now. And what progress we do make in that direction is discouragingly slow sometimes. Maybe you're like me. You've looked in the mirror and you've, you've said to yourself, what's, what's wrong with you? What were you thinking when you said that? How could you? You know better than that. Why did you say that? How can you treat a friend that way? And on and on and on it goes. And that's our struggle. Spiritual growth can be very discouraging at times. But listen, God has a reason for all of this. And here it is. He wants us, listen church, He wants us to depend on Him for Everything in life, including our sanctification. As a matter of fact, he has designed life so that it only works when he is in charge. When you and I, as Brother Paulie talked about, I think on Sunday night or maybe Sunday morning, maybe during the men's deal, but he talked about... um, Jesus being on the throne of our heart and we're on the cross. And when we get those out of order, when we put Jesus back on the cross and we sit on the throne, that's when we mess everything up in our life. Everything. And if the Christian life were left up to us, we would fail every time. Only God can give us what we need to be victorious. As we sit here tonight, we don't feel blameless because we aren't blameless. We are, in fact, blameworthy. And we make things worse sometimes by what we say and what we do. Today, right now, as we sit here, we are unfinished people. But when God is finally finished with us, we will stand blameless in His presence. Amen. And that's the promise. Look at the last part of verse 24. Look at that first word. What is it, church? Tell me. Verse 24, what's the first word? Say it again. Faithful. Faithful. Faithful is He. Who's that? God. Our entire hope, both in this life and in the life to come, rests on the faithfulness of God. 
1464, a sculptor began working on a huge piece of flawed marble, intending to produce a, a, a magnificent sculpture of an Old Testament prophet for a cathedral in Florence, Italy. He labored for two years, and then he stopped. A few years later, uh, 12 years later, 1476, another sculptor picked up where he left off, and he worked on the same piece of marble, but in time, he also abandoned. And 20-some years later, in 1501, a young 26-year-old sculptor named Michelangelo was offered a, a considerable sum of money to produce something worthwhile for that enormous block of marble that they affectionately called the giant. And he began his work. He saw a major flaw near the bottom that had stymied other sculptors. He decided to turn that part of the stone into a broken tree stump that would support his right leg. He worked on the marble for years until he had produced the incomparable David. Now I'll not show a picture of that because it's not altogether proper to be shown in church. Today, that 17-foot-tall statue stands on display in the Academia Gallery in Florence where people come from around the world to view it. More than a masterpiece, it's one of the greatest works of art ever produced. It has been said that there is no statue more perfect. Many have been left to wonder, well, how did he do it? And here's the answer in his own words. In every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. In layman's terms, here's what he said. He said, I cut away everything that didn't look like David. Now apply this to your spiritual life tonight. All of us, all of us are works in progress. We're not finished. We're not glorified. We're not perfected. We're not completed. We are all under construction. And what, what does God need to work on right now in, in your life? I, I can tell you, I know when he's working. I know Brother Brad, I know when he's getting out the hammer and, hammer and chisel and chopping away at me. I, I know it. When I'm sitting there like you're sitting there tonight and our pastor's preaching or some other man of God is preaching as Brother Skelly and, and, and Brother Polly preach this week, I know when God's, when God's going to work on me. And I'm telling you, especially for us men, after Friday and Saturday and Sunday, there ought to be a, there ought to be a chunk of rubble as tall as we are. Amen? I mean, God did some hammering this weekend. God did some chiseling this weekend. And I'm sure it's true for the ladies as well. So, I don't like it when God does that. Neither do I. But it's good for me. So how is God currently working on you? Let me give you that list again real quick. An impatient spirit, a critical tongue, envy of those around you, spirit of discontentment, lingering resentment or bitterness, unconquerable lust, 
financial management, a, a judgmental spirit, a quick temper, an ungrateful spirit, a disorganized life. In what areas tonight are you the most resistant? In what area of your life tonight are you the most stubborn? I mean, God has been hammering on that part of your life for maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe some of us years. And we're better than we were, but we're not what we should be. We're not where we ought to be. And God just keeps hammering away. He's chipping away everything in our life that doesn't look like Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer real quick. We'll not...